Welcome to this episode of the New Space India podcast, a show to keep you informed and engaged on India's space activities. In this episode of the New Space India podcast, I talked to Dr. Susmita Mohanty, who is a spaceship designer and a serial aerospace entrepreneur. Susmita was educated in India, France and Sweden. Before turning into an entrepreneur, Susmita worked at Boeing in California as well as at the NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. She's now based in Bangalore with her company Earth to Orbit. Welcome to this episode of the New Space India podcast. Thanks NP for having me. As a 70s kid, you grew up among the best of the ISRO stalwarts and can you tell us a bit about how were your days on the SAC campus growing around some of these great people? Yeah, I think I had one of the most fantastic childhoods uh growing up in Ahmedabad in the 70s and 80s. Uh the people I grew up with were among the first recruits that Sarabhai uh brought on board for the space program and these were renaissance guys. They had studied in India, studied abroad, um they had fantastic exposure. I could talk to them about anything from space to art, architecture, you name it. And the kind of people we are talking about it's Yashpal uncle, Pant uncle, Chitnis, uh Pramod Kale uncle. And I used to have this bicycle and back in the day security wasn't the big concern. So I could ride my bicycle to space application center and give the name of one of these um colleagues of my dad and also in some ways my mentors. And I would show up in their office and in, the, in the afternoon sometimes they would make a cup of tea and say okay now tell us what are the new ideas you're thinking about um this is the kind of scientists we are talking about you know they were willing to take the time to talk to a schoolgirl about the crazy ideas she has uh, another example would be that of yashpal uncle he used to be the director of space application center uh and i remember i worked on this crazy project where um the outcome of that project was that um a space saucer is a better idea to live in rather than uh, a patchwork of coke can architecture for a space station and not only did he review the entire project so i used to have my dad's portable typewriter and uh, to type and i used to draw by hand and then he would give me feedback on something like that so i i think that that's the kind of people we are missing in today's space landscape in india growing up around these people you must have had a lot of influence uh, from their nature of working and being with the, with the national program and how come you know you did not choose to actually join the national program and instead you know went on to do something in the private sector yeah that's a very good question uh, np so my father too like you um went to germany on a dad fellowship and returned to india in the late 60s when sarabhai was starting to hire for the space program um and i had grown up on a lot of german literature and you know the european scene so to speak uh so for me traveling abroad or going out of the country to experience the world to see the world and then maybe consider returning um to india was not a novel concept my dad had already done it so i was craving to go out and explore the world and i decided that after i finished 
both my degrees in Ahmedabad, one in engineering and one in industrial design. I wanted to go to the Space University in, in Strasbourg. Not so much for another master's, but to be part of the community of young space crazy people. The International Space University in Strasbourg in France is, of course, one of the most reputed places to go network in the space industry. And of course, it's also one of the most expensive places to go study at. I'm sure that you must have pulled off a hustle to get in. So how did you manage that? Yeah, it's funny that you use the verb hustle. Um, so I think what was interesting is it was 1995. I was finishing um, my industrial design degree at NID. By then, I had already made up my mind that I wanted to design things for living off the planet. So living in orbit, living on Mars and so on. It was just the beginning of the Internet. You know, we had monochrome computer screens. Very few people had an email address. And that's the time when I had to raise $35,000 in eight months to be able to make it to ISU. So what I did is, uh, given the way I am, I kind of attacked the problem in very many ways. I got a list of 70 foundations from an uncle who worked in income tax. Uh, I wrote to every single one of them. I approached the United Nations in nine different ways, and I wrote to seven different individuals around the world, including Bill Gates, Carl Sagan, Arthur Clarke, and a bunch of others. And um, the result was I did get one of the foundations to sponsor my flight. I got uh, uh, Baldev Dugal, who called me from New York and said, Susmita, I can't pay your tuition for ISU, but I can offer you a job in New York in my photo studios. I said, well, no, I need to first go to ISU. And I got a call from Arthur Clark on a weekend afternoon from Colombo. He just called me direct and said, Susmita, how much do you need? And I think the rest is history. He essentially gave me a blank check. I didn't cash at all. I still kept a small loan. And um, 14 of my friends who were already in the U.S. pursuing their master's did a Kickstarter before Kickstarter and mm. raised money for my living expenses. So that's the story. Yeah, I can't believe that this story is actually from 20 years before. Absolutely. I always tell young people that don't hesitate to cold call on people and don't hesitate to reach out to anybody you want to without worrying about what the response is going to be. It's tough being a space engineer from India and trying to find career choices abroad. So how did you actually start your career? Well, you know, aerospace is always a tricky uh, place to be. After ISU, I had two job offers, one from Aerospatiale in Les Mureaux outside of Paris to work on the ATV program, which is a resupply ship for the space station. And the other job offer I had was from McDonnell Douglas in California, in Southern California. And if you're a foreign national, it's almost impossible to work on uh, space sites because in Lemuro, they were making the Ariane rockets. In the McDonnell Douglas site, they were making Delta rockets. So I had to wait for a couple of months in France. They could not get me the security clearance. And then I moved on to the U.S., was nomadic for about eight months. Um, and finally, after 15 months, they managed to get me the clearance. And by then, McDonnell Douglas had been acquired by Boeing. So I started working for Boeing for the space station program in 1998. And this is now the end of 90s and early 2000. And here you are, a space engineer, and suddenly you decide to become a space entrepreneur. So I, after working for Boeing for about two and a half, three years, I decided I want to leave 
and move to another city, uh, preferably a walkable city. In the U.S., you don't have very many walkable cities. So it pretty much boiled down to San Francisco, New York, and I chose San Francisco to move to and start my own company with a friend and fellow ISU alum, Andrew Hoppin. It was a crazy idea because back then, startups were not in vogue. The word startup didn't quite exist back in 90, sorry, in 2000 is when I started my first company. So I, I think in many ways, it's not the no, it wasn't the norm. It wasn't a normal thing to do, to leave a steady job and go start a little space company. But that's what I did. And it was called Moonfront. This must have been daunting, starting your own space company in the U.S. Yeah, I think um, it was a bit risky because I was also on a work visa. To be on a work visa in a foreign country and start your own company is very counterintuitive. But I think the reason I did it is after spending three years in Boeing, I learned everything there was to learn in terms of, you know, bid and proposal, negotiation, negotiating contracts, managing contracts. And I would, had I stayed longer, I would have just been repeating the same thing over and over again. And I'm always looking for new things to do. And I was getting to a point where I thought I need to go out and change the world. I need to go out and change the status quo. I need to be able to speak my mind freely. You know, when you work for a space agency or a company, you have to tread a certain line and you cannot um, talk about things the way you see it. Post your U.S. uh, startup, you then decide to actually move back to India? The world we live in, you and I, is uh, there isn't that much of a back and forth anymore. Because while I was living in San Francisco, I also started a company in Vienna, which is uh, called Liquifer. This company is now 14 years old. It's, It's doing very well. I've not been involved for the past two years, but I was for almost 12 years. And then moving to India and starting yet another venture was just, in my view, a continuity of this thought leadership. So the continent didn't matter. It didn't matter whether I was in Mumbai or in Vienna or in in San Francisco. The idea was to pursue things to be able to take space exploration and access to space to the next level. So I think geography, we have become geography agnostic, um, NP, if you ask me. At least that's the way I've lived my life. So I did come back to India, but not in a come back in a, in a return sense. I continue to be connected to the global space uh, scene. And I also felt that maybe it's uh, it's a good chance to go back and do something for India, but not from within a space agency, but from the outside as a private individual. So one of the interesting things here is actually the culture of doing things. One is, of course, to see ISRO grow through its pioneers. And the second is, you know, being an entrepreneur and doing all these things in different parts of the world. Given your experiences with all of these, how do you see, you know, the evolution of the Indian space program and its culture over this period of time? I think that's, uh, we have two different questions here, NP. So let let me take the first one. Um, So ISRO has evolved in a fairly steady manner. But what's happened is the pioneers, the way they envisioned the program and the way they ran it was very different from the way ISRO is managed and run today. 
what we have today is technocrats running the organization in a bureaucratic fashion. What we had then back in the 70s were people who had started the program and had a vision that was sort of blue sky. You know, it was it was not constrained by the politics of the times. It was not um, they didn't they were not insecure about the outsiders, in this case, entrepreneurs and the industry taking over. I think today when I look at ISRO, I feel they need to uh, do a complete overhaul of their mindset. They say that they are now starting to deregulate and privatize, which they should have done, in my view, 20 years ago. It's good that finally they are putting together a consortia to build satellites and a consortia to assemble the PSLV. But I think overall, they're still not comfortable with the idea of entrepreneurship or entrepreneurs. And they look at us as competitors rather than allies. And that needs to change. As for the space landscape, I think Skybox, about maybe uh, 10 years ago, became the first space startup, so to speak, to raise private money in the Valley. Until then, even now, whether it's Elon Musk or um, you know smaller companies, uh, everybody relies on the government being the primary customer, which is slowly starting to change. And I think, to me, that is the big shift from the early part of this century and 18 years hence. That today, when you start a space company, you can potentially be focusing on something where you can have private customers. The other big change, uh, NP, is that Aerospace back then used to exist in isolation. And now the space world cross-pollinates with IT, with nanotech, and with a, with a bunch of other high-technology sectors. And that's, make, that's made it more exciting. Yeah, the, the phenomena of the U.S. Uh, satellites being launched on Indian rockets is actually quite new. And uh, I know that you were actually one of the key people who were involved in uh, bringing together the stakeholders uh, in uh, making sure that there is a, some sort of a consensus that would allow these U.S. satellites to be launched on Indian rockets. It would be great if you could debrief a bit on how this panned out. I think uh, that bit of my professional and personal history in terms of contributing to the space landscape in India is uh, what I call... Um, a gift to Sarabhai. You know, the year he, he, he passed away is the year I was born. And our birthdays are practically the same date. I was born on the 11th of August and he on the 12th. So I always wanted to give back something to Sarabhai, the guy I had never met, but who had inspired me in so many ways. Uh, so when I came back to India, NP, I looked around. I sort of updated my understanding of where our space program was. And one of the things that caught my attention was the PSLV, which first launched in 93. And in 2008, when I returned to India, I, I sort of added up all the launches PSLV had done since 1999, when it did the first foreign payload launch until 2008. And I found that it added up to a meager 1,500 kilograms. And all of those payloads were European payloads, largely. So I... I, I took it upon myself as sort of a mission to get the Japanese and the Americans as well to launch on the PSLV. The Japanese, we launched a university satellite in 2012 on the PSLV. And then we signed up our first American client, Skybox Imaging, which was a Stanford startup. 
because they were a startup and we were a startup, we had nothing to lose in terms of going out and trying to get permission from the U.S. State Department to launch on an Indian launch vehicle, which was not allowed. It was banned. There were three big hurdles. One was the 1998 uh, U.S. embargo on India when we conducted nuclear tests, which still exists, by the way. It's a 20-year-old embargo. That prevents American companies from selling space components to ISRO. So launching on a rocket, on an Indian rocket, was simply out of question. The second hurdle was ITAR. ITAR is an export control regime from the Cold War times, from the 60s. And nobody is really bothered to reform it or overhaul it. So that's, that was the second problem. The third was, of course, the multi-million dollar lobbying in D.C., which prevents businesses from leaving the United States. And if you look at the companies that are now coming up and are planning to launch constellations, they are in constant need of secondary launches. And PSLV is a great candidate because it flies frequently. It's highly reliable. And... Um, there's no reason to have this, this sort of blockade between two countries. And that's um, why I went about meeting diplomats and bureaucrats, both in Delhi and in Washington, D.C. Over three years, I must have met about a dozen of them. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the Spielberg movie Bridge of Spies, but there's a scene where Tom Hanks is talking to the Russian consul in East Berlin. And he, he tells the Russian consul, let's talk about things that our countries cannot. So being a woman and being, um, it, it sort of helped because I consider this soft diplomacy. I talked to people on both sides. I showed them why we should be building a bridge between the two countries and collaborating and opening up this access to launch. And I think it paid off. Even Skybox, the team played its role. Uh, on the American side. And after three years, we finally got the first ever waiver given by the U.S. State Department for an American company to launch on an Indian rocket. And it took us another year to get all the signatures on both sides. And in April of 2014, we signed the first ever, it's historic, I mean, the launch agreement between Antrix and Skybox. And by the time we launched the satellite, it was 2016, and Skybox had been acquired by Google. So we launched a Google satellite on the PSLV. So I think it was quite an epic story in the sense that embargoes and export control regimes can be overcome through soft diplomacy. I think that's what it was all about. We now, of course, have ISRO, who's actually building a dedicated small satellite launch vehicle. And I guess it is uh, planning to do some of the earliest flights uh, end of this year or early next year. And at the same time, you now have several of the US-based uh, small satellite private launch vehicles, which are probably going to come up live this year or next year. So these two might be in sort of a conflict between each other in the market because several of the US satellite makers get the permission to launch on the PSLV on the basis that there is not enough U.S. capacity. There's, of course, also the U.S. launch lobby who strongly wants the U.S. business to be retained within the U.S. border. How do you see all of this panning out? I think that's, again, a very good question. You know, it's always been a seesaw of sorts, NP. If you look at the past three, four decades of uh, space competition and collaboration between countries. 
And all of my ventures, whether it was Moonfront in San Francisco or Liquifer in Vienna or Earth to Orbit in India, is all one of the objectives I've had is to promote international cooperation. Now let's talk about the the, the access market. So I think while there was a lot of hype around building small satellite launchers in the last 18, well, but let's say 10 years, the one successful small satellite launch company is really out of New Zealand with offices in Southern California, and that's uh, Rocket Labs, right? Virgin has been trying to build a small satellite launcher. We all know that. Now, ISRO, I believe, is also planning to build a small satellite launcher. So I think there is a, there's a, there's definitely a demand for small satellite launchers, but nobody has really sort of been able to successfully test and run a small satellite launcher yet commercially, right? I mean, that's the reality. It, every time, it takes time in the space world to build and fly things. So I think what's going to happen is if India does successfully build and launch a small satellite launcher, in addition to the PSLV, the U.S., you know, despite its export control regimes and business lobbies, they will have to see whether their, you know, companies that are planning small satellite launches can compete both in terms of frequency of launches, pricing, and, you know, just successful launches. You can start a company, but you might have failures in the first few years. So I think India has the advantage of the PSLV story where we have the heritage and the legacy to be able to build a small satellite launcher quickly and successfully. So I think there will be competition, but I don't see the access of for American companies to launch on Indian vehicles being reversed irreversibly. I think, yes, let's say Trump tomorrow decides to not allow. It, it can happen, but I think the next precedent, maybe four years from now or eight years from now, might allow that again. So I think it's always a seesaw. It's never... Uh, it's never black and white. I don't think once you open up a launch market, you can't close it that easily and you cannot close it for good. When you kicked off your venture in India, did you happen to do a bit of scouting with some of the people who were already working from the private sector side with ISRO? That's a, that's Yes, it's true that I did um, go and meet some of the companies that build system-level hardware for ISRO. I will not name the companies, but it was wonderful to go and see their facilities and talk to them about their experience working with ISRO and for the Indian Space Program. So I think the general feeling that I took away with me, having uh, seen the facilities, met the people, was that dealing with ISRO was tough. I mean, dealing with any bureaucracy in the world is tough, uh, and most space agencies are bureaucracies. There was a sense of pride that even if they were building, let's say, a limited number of those hardware components for ISRO in a year and didn't really have any profits, uh, there was a sense of pride that they were contributing to the space program. There was a sense of frustration that they were not allowed to grow uh, and compete internationally. They did not dissuade me from starting my own company, but I think their feedback did set the tone for what were the kind of hurdles I was going to come up against. And pretty much the same hurdles, if you ask me, what they have faced over the last 20, 30 years. So I think it was, for me, it was about learning from their experience. 
and finding ways to overcome those hurdles. Uh, and I'm hoping that now that ISRO is thinking about privatizing satellite assembly and rocket assembly, these companies will not only get to build for more number of launches, a greater number of satellites, but we need a policy overhaul in Delhi where we should think about how do we enable these companies that have already been contributing to uh, ISRO and the newer ones, you know, uh, smaller companies, newer companies, how can they go out and compete internationally? We cannot limit them to the Indian space program. That would be, I mean, that's a crime. A lot of the progress in space programs come from the underlying policy that drive this growth. Give us a sense about how this works in space. I see uh, both positives and negatives. So I think the negative is that as a country, we've never been a policy-driven country. So whether it's the environment or space, we do not use policy as a framework. So I think we have to evolve as a nation. We have to grow up and figure out how to come up with coherent, inclusive policies, which not only is authored and dictated by the lead agency in this case, where industries and, and thinkers, you know, in, in very many ways, should be part of that policy making. Uh, and not only should we, I mean, we should also know how to implement that policy. That's the other tough thing we need to learn. Uh, but on the positive side, I think having seen how NASA works and how the European Space Agency works, we have some advantages too for our space program. In the United States, every four years, when the president of the country changes, the head of NASA is replaced, and then all the center heads are replaced. So a lot of programs, which are very promising, very mature, millions of dollars have been spent, are discontinued. And it leads to colossal wastage of money. And every time the president changes, one wants to go to Mars, the other wants to go to the moon, and, you know, that sort of dissonance, which the U.S. program, I think, suffers from. When I look at Europe, I think Europe has to always work through consensus. There are 20 plus member states um, and consensus is their way of doing things. And the problem with that approach is that you never end up leading from the front. ESA often ends up piggybacking on NASA. Whereas India, for that matter, even China, have the advantage of being able to lead independently and if you look at India, look at our planetary missions, you know, the one to Moon and Mars. So we, we went ahead and did our own thing. And then we invited others to join if they wanted to. And that allows you to run your programs on budget, on time. For example, our Mars mission, we were able to pull it off in 14 months. Normally, a NASA or an ESA would, would require six to seven years to build a plan and fly a planetary mission. So I think there are advantages and there are disadvantages. And we need to make figure out how to fix the problems we have while leveraging the successes and the advantages we already have, given the way we run. The other advantage India has is unwavering political will and public support. Our budget has been going on. It's, it's been increasing year after year. Earlier, it was increasing at about 15%. I mean, just roughly speaking. And now it's been increasing, you know, in, in many ways, if you ask other countries, uh, by leaps and bounds. So we have, we have that stability and continuity that we can build on. 
There is a lot of new interesting things happening with the human space flight as well as the interplanetary missions that ISRO is flying. Where do you see India heading in the next 20 or 30 years? Okay, well, um, let's see, 20 to 30. I think in 20 years, I would imagine that our privatization of routine satellite assembly, rocket assembly and launches will have matured. I definitely think we would have uh, done a couple of sample return missions, uh, either planetary sample return or asteroid sample return. I also think we will have an orbiting outpost in low Earth orbit. But unlike the United States and Europe and Japan, uh, we should not limit ourselves. We should not spend too much time in LEO. That's just my way of looking at things. Because since the other countries have already spent, uh, what, 30, 40 years uh, in human space exploration, there's a lot of knowledge that we can already build on. So we should spend a couple of years in low Earth orbit and then plan our first landings, possibly on moon. So I think in 30 years, I'm hoping to see um, India, uh, even China, uh, land humans on the moon. There are many sectors within the space domain that India has still no capacity in. One of the examples is perhaps um, astrobiology, which looks at the study of life in the universe or the search for life beyond Earth itself. What are the areas you believe that India should invest today so that it's a player tomorrow? I I love that question, NP. I mean, I personally come from a very multidisciplinary uh, background. And I think India, what it uh, hasn't done yet and should consider doing in the future, is take a multidisciplinary approach to space exploration and utilization. And by that, I mean we should... Think of all of these other disciplines, whether it is astrobiology or 3D printing in outer space. And, and I think maybe, maybe it can happen with a change in leadership. See, I always feel whether it's an architecture school or a space agency, a lot of things depends on the person leading the program. So I think if the person leading the program has that kind of multidisciplinary vision, we can uh, invest resources in all of those areas. That uh, provokes actually an interesting question of how space leaders are are trained across uh, different space nations. Do you think the culture of leadership is very different in uh, US, China against India? So I think in all of these space agencies that you just uh, listed, it's usually the engineers who have been part of the program and have risen through the ranks make it to the top. There is certainly regional Uh, politics involved. Like in Europe, it's usually a competition between the French and the Italians and the Germans as to who is going to head the space agency, because they are the biggest contributors to the program. So there's that politics. In India, we have regional politics, right, whether people from the north or the south or the east or the west are going to head. Uh, And for very many years, we've had people from the south head uh, ISRO. I would love to see a woman heading ISRO because 12% uh, of our workforce at ISRO is women. And I don't see why we haven't had a woman head so yet. Uh, so there is, so there is, in terms of leadership, there's always the usual organizational politics, regional politics. But I personally feel there isn't any one kind of training you can give to someone who wants to go out and head a space agency. What you can do 
is have him work at different centers or have him go and experience how space programs are run in other countries, for example. So in other words, give him or her the maximum exposure you can uh, so that he or she can then think about things in a more open-minded sort of way and um, thereby bring progressive thinking to the organization when he or she goes out and heads the agency. Let me end this episode by asking you if you'd be flying to Mars, who'd you be flying with? (laughs) Okay, Mars is not exactly on the top of my list. If I had a chance, I would go to the moon, our moon, Earth's moon, or one of the Jupiter moons. But anyway, so if I were to go out and be part of a settlement on some other planetary body, I would want a very mixed group of people to accompany me. I was on an Antarctic expedition last year, uh, and we had on our expedition artists, divers, philosophers, interdisciplinary thinkers, scientists, and that's the kind of companionship I would want on any expedition, any settlement. It cannot just be engineers and scientists. We have to have all kinds of people, and then I think it'll be, it'll be exciting. And I would also want plants to come along. I really connect to trees and and nature. So I think those are the two kinds of companions I would want on my expedition. Always a pleasure talking to you, Susmita. Good luck with your future adventures. Thank you, NP. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for staying until the end. If you have any comments or suggestions, please write to curator at newspaceindia.com. Please use the link in the description if you want to join the New Space India community and have a great day or a lovely evening depending on wherever you're listening from.